Hello and welcome to episode number 317 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have been learning more economics, science, the brain, specifically in this case, the brain, maybe surgery, transplants, whatnot. On this episode, we have the author of this book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, a play on a past name you may know of. The author is Dr. Brandy Skilache. Brandy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you on here. A monkey's head, the Pope's neuroscientist, and the quest to transplant the soul. That's the sub tag or whatever it's called. <laughs> That's great. This is a book in the category of items that would pull in a lot of readers. I can tell because I check the internet. I know what is tends to be popular or uh, people are interested in. And some of the top podcasts have topics not that far from <laughs> So. Head transplant, the beginning of life, the end of life, whether or not your brain can outlive its bo- outlive the body, it, it can, um, you know, other things like that. Other things like that. Now to add in, you do run a book club, peculiar book club. You are a research associate at Dietrich Medical History Center and Museum. Uh, you have written multiple books before. Uh, Death Summer Coat is one of them. Dying teach us, teaches us about life. A lot of these have a theme of the bridge yeah. between life and death. Yeah, yeah, that, that tends to happen with my work. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have been on, you've given a TEDx talk, you have given various talks, you have appeared on NPR's Sound of Ideas in various locations. So a lot of activity across the board. I always like to point out various activity because momentum builds from our uh, doing what we do. Now, true. before we get into the book, you are in the category of history, medical history, that how did you get into this category in the first place? Why? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, well, I'm actually not a research associate at the district anymore, though I, I was, I have a very strange career that has moved in a lot of different directions. Um, I, I've been uh, a professor. I've worked in a history department, a literature department, and uh, I've had an office in an anthropology department at different times. And now I'm the editor for the Medical Humanities Journal, which is a journal published by the BMJ or the British Medical Journal Association, so, uh, or the BMA. And that's kind of, uh, I'm an intersection sort of person to begin with. I kind of, uh, I think life is more interesting at the intersections. And so a lot of these places where history and culture and society and weird stuff and science uh, and medicine all collide together where the human is at the center, that, that tends to be where I, I like to hang out, that that tends to be my favorite place to be. So I, I started off in academe and then I left academe for museum work and I'm now an editor and freelance and I run the, I'm the host of this show that happens twice a month on uh, second and fourth Tuesday, uh, Thursdays of the month. So it really, you know, all of that is to say, I love the middle bits. I love that sort of interstitial gray area. I think that's fantastic. I also grew up in an underground house next to a cemetery, so. Classic underground houses next to a cemetery. Didn't we all grow up there? No, not exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I sat on a lot of tombstones and read about bubonic plague. And, um, you know, my, my parents actually were both quite ill when I was young. Uh, my father having heart disease and my mom had cancer a couple of times. And so, you know, that, that medicine sort of burst into my life in ways that <laughs> I might not have been completely ready for at the time. But, um, but all of that, you know, makes you who you are especially well, the living underground part. Right. That's a different <laughs> one. And you did mention somewhere else that you have been in many basements, which are also mm. underground. 
so many like, basements. It's like my life just sort of begins, ends, and revolves around basements. Huh. <laughs> you know, somebody has to be on the middle floors, upper floors. <laughs> somebody has to analyze the basements and see what's going somebody on. Somebody has to. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, and in, in our house, our the roof was above ground, and we had a black snake that lived in the roof, so in the rafters. So the the snake had this sort of penthouse, and we were we were in the basement. Huh. Good old snakes. Now, also, <laughs> when you're saying tombstones, I saw the necropolis. Uh, this year because I went to Scotland. Have you ever been there or is that a kind of place or have you gone to these kinds of locations that have a bunch so of- So I missed actually getting to go to the necropolis. I, I've been to Glasgow. I've been, I've been to Scotland many times, but somehow I've never made it to the necropolis. I have been to Père Lachaise uh, in Paris. Um, I've also been to the Paris catacombs, speaking of things that are underground. Um, and cemeteries pretty much everywhere else in the world. I've, I've been to them probably you know, New Orleans, lots of places, but um, no, I miss the necropolis and, and somehow it's just never aligned for me to go there. But I, I do love a good cemetery as do many of my friends, uh, the living ones, I mean. Would you say, before we get into the material that you have a good or a relatively good sense of the bridge between life and death at this point, if that's a category that you have looked at over time? I It certainly, it certainly is. It's certainly something I've spent a lot of time um, focusing my energies on. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But my, one of my early books, Death Summer Coat, that you mentioned, looks at all kinds of grief and death rituals. And I write a series for Medium on death and dying as well. So it is something that I'm really, really interested in. But what was cool about this book is it's, it's almost a, it's like the, the other side of it, right? It's not about where does life end, but more um, where's that hazy line? Like, what is life? What is that? What does it mean to be alive? What, where is life? You know, is it in your, is it brain life? Is it body life? What does that, what does that mean? And what does it say about us as people? That's true. We all know in 2021, all our life is in a phone. It's all, <laughs> it's all located there. Classic. Now, this book is called Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, which is a play on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's a good side, bad side, uh, or there is a positively oriented side and a more, let's say, sinister side of sorts related to the doctor, in this case, Dr. Robert White. Can you tell us about why he was picked to discuss about, was he the only individual that fit this specific category? Um, I'm not sure that he's the only one. I One of the other people I've I'll be interviewing actually on Thursday um, for my show is Thomas Morris, who did a book called Exploding Teeth. And I also interviewed and uh, did a review for the ice pick surgeon written by Sam Keen. And they, a lot of these texts talk about those physicians, doctors, or scientists who kind of have these two, two halves. But Dr. Robert White is the only one of them that decided to perform a head transplant, um, which is the ultimate Frankensteinian idea, right? To, to find out if you can get a brain outside of one body and put it in another body. And, and he's someone who literally, legitimately, and successfully did that. And most people just don't know that that ever even happened, much less that there's a whole back history behind it that goes into the Cold War and everything else. This was during the Cold War time. Compared to what he had done at that point, where does it look like where we are at right now? Have we taken mm. what he has done and used it currently? So it's, yes, actually. So it's, it's really peculiar. I almost have to, I have to start off with the isolated brain in order to make any of this make sense because it's mm -hmm. such a tangled story. So 
your listeners, you, they can probably close their eyes and imagine a brain and you sort of see this pink blob in space, right? It sort of looks like a walnut and it's got a line down the middle. We can all kind of think of that. And it seems very clean and clinical and cartoonish. But imagine having to get that brain out of a body. Okay, now it gets a little messier and we're thinking, okay, so it's a cadaver and you're taking the brain out to study it. Now let's imagine that you have to get that brain out, but while it's still alive. And this is just, you have to just pause and live with that for a moment to realize that's a really weird idea. That's if the brain is one thing to like, okay, we're going to take a heart out and do a heart transplant. We've done that, right? So you're, yes. they hook you up to various machines. They take your heart out and they put a new heart in, but you're not in the heart. But if we take your brain out so that the brain's still living, do you go with it is really the question. So Dr. White sets out to answer this question and he starts off using, he, he, he starts off using mice, but he ultimately graduates to using primates. So monkeys were our nearest evolutionary relative and he, he wants to take a brain out of a living monkey and keep it alive the whole time. Meaning you have to flush it with blood and nutrients and, and you have to watch its temperature and you have to make sure it doesn't go into shock and all of these kinds of things. And he does it by using another monkey as a donor, as a blood donor, essentially. So he's flooding one monkey's blood into this other monkey's head as he slowly carves the body away. So now you just have this head being fed with blood from another monkey, then he slowly carves the skull and the face and everything else out away from the brain. So you just have the brain, this little bulb, it's sort of pink and it's flushed with fluids. It's a little pink bulb of brain and he's got it hooked up to EEG. And the EEG shows you, you know, your, your brain patterns and it's on, the brain is on. The brain is thinking it's sending signals over to the, so it's just a brain, nobody. And it's sending signals to an EEG that says, I'm alive, I'm in here. I'm responding. Uh, it was metabolizing. It was, you know, consuming energy. It was doing all the things that a living brain would do, but it's got no body. And so at the time we were asking really hard questions about trans about organ transplant. Like when are you dead enough for someone to take your organ? And so they came up with this concept of brain death where your body's alive, but your brain is dead and therefore they can harvest your organs. But what happens if your brain's alive, but your body's dead? are you still alive or are you dead or are you at some kind of liminal in-between space? And so I just have to get that out there to begin with, because this is such a, it just, it's, I hate to use the word mind blowing, <laughs> but it, but it is, it's just a really out there idea. And that's partly what he sets out to do. So everything kind of crystallizes around this idea and all of the things that he had to invent to make it possible. And those are the things we still use today. That makes sense. Like the process along the way is the process right. that you still have to use. Yeah, absolutely. Issues. Now, what are, did he mention specifically what some of the things you had to maintain were like you have to have uh, blood flow, oxygen flow? Oh yeah. So your brain is super greedy. Uh, your brain is just a greedy organ. Hey, stop and it that. wants that's, not, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> it just wants all the oxygen and it consumes oxygen at like an enormous rate. And so that's why, that's why, you know, if you cut your head, there's like a lot, you bleed a lot. It's because you've got all this blood going up there to try and keep you oxygenated and your brain's just like more, need more O2, you know, can't think right. Got to have the oxygen. Well, that's the problem then if you want to operate on it, right? Because if you interrupt the blood flow, even for, if you interrupt oxygen, even for a tiny little bit of time, brain cells die. And the longer you're without oxygen, the more of them die. 
to the point that eventually you are offline, you know? So he wanted to figure out how to, how to, how to slow that down. And it just so happened at the time he was a medical resident, I think at Mayo Clinic, they were working on paralysis in dogs. And they were learning that if you um, hypercooled, supercooled the area around a, a brain or sort of a spinal injury, sometimes you could lessen the result of the, you know, the resulting paralysis. Well, along the way, they sort of accidentally or well, not accidentally, but they, they had to supercool the brain along the way. And what he found out was, as your brain gets colder, it needs less oxygen. And that's why you get these stories of people who've been like skiers who end up buried in the snow and they're, they're frozen, they thaw them out and their hearts have stopped, but yet they're still alive because the brain was like, it's fine, I'm on ice, you know, I'll, I'll just chill. Um, so he, he discovers that. And then as a result, he creates techniques and protocols and, and apparatus to, to do what's called therapeutic hypothermia, which we still use. So for instance, if you have open heart surgery or you know, they, they, they'll cool your brain down so that it doesn't, so you don't suffer brain damage from the, the resulting you know, stoppage of the heart. Um, they even have been doing it for massive heart attacks. Sometimes you have a heart attack, but you end up dying of brain damage because you, you know, suddenly your heart's not getting oxygen to where it needs to be and they're using hyper uh, supercooling for that too. So that was one thing because he's like, okay, can't take this brain out and keep it alive unless I can cool it off <laughs> and make sure it's not as greedy, you know? So that's one thing that he did. And we use it all the time. My father went in for open heart surgery and they, he had that done to him too. So that's a yeah, success right crazy. there. <laughs> that's a nice feature. I've talked about a few times with some scientists about how touching things and trying things after a few times, you start to see a pattern and suddenly, oh, wait a minute, something else was happening we weren't taking note of. Oh, this cooling was affecting the mm -hmm. brain. Oh, wait, was it lasting longer? And then you figure things out. In life, only if you try things can you figure things out because mm -hmm. you- Science you is a lot like that, right? I mean, you have to kind of, it's progressive. I, mean, I know a lot of people got upset about the, what seemed like changing information due to the pandemic, but that's because science, it learns this much and then it learns a little more and sometimes it takes you in a different direction and, and that's, that's just practical science for you. It's like adaptive. And so mm -hmm. to point it out every like millisecond and say, it hasn't figured it out yet. That's not really <laughs> four seconds later. Where are you at? I'm not, I'm not there currently. But will be. Did the doctor ever look at other animals or work on them before humans mm -hmm. to compare? Yes. Uh, he performed quite a lot of surgeries on dogs. This is not unusual. Um, it was, that was also happening in Russia, which he was sort of competing against the Soviet Union, uh, a, a person named Vladimir Demikov. And a lot of those experiments took place on dogs. And there's a reason behind that, but it tends to upset people a lot, right? People don't want you to do, they don't mind so much when it's on mice and rats, but they get very upset when it's on dogs. But dogs are so easy because Dogs are actually quite easy to deal with. They're easy to keep happy. They're easy to keep healthy. They like you, <laughs> so it's <laughs> helpful. Um, and so he did. He he wanted to find out how long, for instance, a brain outside of a body could live. That living brain. That's so he transplanted one dog's brain into a pouch in the neck of another dog, and so that that dog's body was keeping blood and everything going to this brain that was just living in its neck. And they tested it and two unusual things we discovered. Number one, 
yes, you could keep it along sort of indefinitely uh, and the brain was still alive in there and they could hook up EEGs through the neck to the brain and see that it still had something going on inside. Um, the other thing is that, you know, if I take my heart out and I, well, I'm not gonna take my own heart out, but if someone takes my heart out and gives it to someone else, they have to give you a bunch of anti-rejection drugs or else your body would reject it. Mm -hmm. That's not true of the brain. There's no rejection of the brain matter because of the blood brain barrier. So it, yeah, so it turns out Dr. Frankenstein was right. You could just plunk another brain in there and, and you'd be fine. If you could reattach it to everything <laughs> once you got it in there, which is more of a problem. But, um, but yes, it turns out that the, the dog's body did not reject the brain. So it just went around with this extra brain. So it's a dog with two brains. But in Russia, in the Soviet Union, uh, in Moscow specifically, they were making two-headed dogs. So they were literally creating these little monsters um, I don't, apparently, I just made a sign for a two-headed dog that looks like a butterfly. Apologies to anyone who's not watching it visually. But um, anyway, the, the, he, the, he basically took the, a much larger dog and attached a smaller dog's head and sort of four, four part of its body to that dog. Uh, and both brains of both dogs were fed by the larger dog. And they, they could drink milk and they could, I mean, they woke up and they were, they looked around and they could still be dog-like. Um, there's very disturbing footage out there. Actually, you can find it. This would be found disturbing by most. I would say that's true. Sometimes I've seen examples of, let's say, alterations in the form or like when uh, something grows within people and makes like a, some sort of cyst or other item yeah. like that. And it looks odd, but it's just that thing trying to grow within its environment, just like the other thing that grows normally. But in this case, it's maybe not in the exact place that it was normally mm. planned for. And so mm -hmm. we're like, that's weird. <laughs> that's yeah. Well, there's a lot of, I was reading uh, Mukherjee's The Gene and in Intimate History, and they're talking about genetic mutations and how these, uh, actually some of this is in Sam, uh, I'm sorry, in Carl Zimmer books, Zimmer's book too, Life's Edge. But this this concept that mutation is is not, it's not from outer space. It's, it's from your body doing something or turning something on or turning it off in a place in the body where it doesn't belong. Now, in this case, it's, it was humans doing that to uh, the animal. I think that's where a lot of people, the ethics get really muddy because it's like, well, why are you, why? Why are you making this? What's the point of a two-headed dog, right? What's the ultimate, what's your goal there? You're not, you're not planning on two-headed humans. So, so what's the point of creating something? And Dr. White asked that question himself. He was like, I don't understand what the two-headed dogs are for. But at the same time, because the Soviet Union had done it. The United States was interested in figuring out how it was done because we had this race, because it's the Cold War, and you don't want them winning, you know. <laughs> so that is our competition. We cannot lose to them at this yeah. time. That's true. Right. One thing that comes to mind is you have covered ethics for many years as well along the way. This most of this was done, you know, 50 years ago, Cold War time, whenever that is. Do we have the ability to do similar research today? And also what kinds of uh, pushback did he receive at that time? Right, so it, it's really interesting because times have changed a lot. I mean, for one thing, we don't, uh, it's, it's hard. We, we were coming out of World War II and you had this sense that if your science won, your ideology won. So there was a real sense that American science had to be king and there was this great enemy we had to defeat and having an enemy means sometimes um things that we might not do we might you know we might step back and go well maybe we don't need to focus on that or put money behind that 
discovering that your opponent was succeeding in an area meant suddenly there was government funding for things that you might not be able to get funding for today. But the other thing that's really different, it's really changed is, I mean, White's career spans the civil rights movement, the animal rights movement, you know, people react very differently today than they did then. And they were not keen about this back then. People were not super jazzed about a lot of what was going on. Early transplant, early, uh, the second heart transplant done by Christian Barnard in South, uh, South Africa was he took a black man's heart and put it in a white man's body. And there was a huge reaction to that. Like, oh my goodness, are surgeons going to be farming black bodies to save white lives? And what's the, who decides? You know, if the surgeon's the one who's deciding and the surgeon is himself white, that's a real problem. Like, how do we know that we are actually receiving the best care or are they letting us die so they can take our organs? There's a lot of questions, even at the time. Then with animal ethics, there was uh, anti-vivisection movements even in the 19th century. But when you start to see these things on television, it, it, it really blows up. It really, like suddenly the general public was made aware of things that were happening. Uh, and, and this is the rise of, of PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Um, they kind of come to the fore right around the same time over a case involving monkeys in Silver Springs, not related to Dr. White, but of course, he's also performing these, these weird head experiments. He, you know, there's like 300 frozen monkey heads in, in the lab. And so that's going to upset people. PETA ultimately takes aim at Dr. White and other people like him and saying, look, what you're doing to animals is not right. You've got them in small cages. They're not, they're not well treated. At the time, Dr. White did everything by the book. But today, the books are very different. Uh, we have very different laws as the result of these clashes. So now you can't just stick monkeys in a cage and perform experiments on them. They have to have enclosures. They have to have enrichment. It's, some labs look almost more like mini zoos. You know, they have to create a, a life for the animals that is better. And, and that's better for science too, because if you're working with a sick or upset or stressed out animal, that's probably skewing the results. So anyway, Dr. White on one side and, and PETA and animal rights activists, and he clashed and, and he was a bit of a provocateur as well. I mean, they called him Dr. Butcher. He called himself Mr. Humble, which, I mean, if you call yourself Mr. Humble, I sort of feel like I'm a bit suspicious to start off with. <laughs> um, and he just had this huge personality. And so when PETA was making claims against him, he went on the attack and he published articles about them and claimed that they were, you know, kind of the, that they, that they cared more about animals than babies. And I mean, it was a, it was a big fight. And I, I think ultimately it's hard to know exactly who won. It was more of a back and forth that went on for years. It's tough to call oneself humble and get away with it. It's a, <laughs> it's a challenge of sorts. I'm humble. Are you? You just said that. That's true. Yeah. And the battle there. I like that you mentioned the risk level. Uh, he would push the bounds and take certain risks, which means he would not only get the pushback from specific people at what he was doing, but also anything in the nation going mm -hmm. on similar to what he's doing, they'll point to somebody who's doing that. Mm -hmm. And so I've thought about that before, like the level of risk you take, you're actually enveloping everything underneath that everywhere mm -hmm. uh, indirectly, risk, risk tolerance and whatnot. Now, uh, did what was the story? Was there a story of why he got into this field in the first place? 
for himself? There, yeah, there is. Well, it's complicated. Um, he really was somebody who had two, not two personalities, but two sides of his life, right? So on one hand, he was a very famous neurosurgeon and he saved lots of people's lives. And frankly, you can't go anywhere in Cleveland, Ohio without running into somebody whose life he touched, saved, helped. I mean, it's a big deal, thousands of surgeries. He invented surgeries to save children. He, you know, he worked really hard to make people's lives better and, and to create protocols that would help people survive and then live more full lives, even with brain trauma, et cetera. So you have that. And he's Catholic. He had 10 kids. He's like, you know, this is like 10 whole kids, all of them. Um, and he, this was his life. On the other side, he was also a neuroscientist. So he had an MD, but you know, he was a surgeon, but he also had a PhD and he was a neuroscientist. And that was where he really pushed the boundaries. And he wanted to, he wanted to know where's that boundary between life and death? What if you could not just give someone an organ transplant, but to give them all brand new organs? Like what if you took somebody like Stephen Hawking, this is his own example, and you gave him an entirely new body full of brand new organs so you know it's like a fresh start. Wouldn't that be a way of saving someone's life and improving it? Now, granted, you've severed the spinal cord, so they're still going to be paralyzed. But but his to his point, uh, Stephen Hawking was already paralyzed. So he's like, you know, but yet you would give him this fresh body, and he could have lived longer if he had had this done. So wouldn't that be worth doing? So for Dr. White, it was related to his desire to save lives, but it was also related to his desire to question the boundaries. You know, we still today don't have a single agreed upon simple definition of when you die. Like now, even now, there's legal definitions. And because there's legal definitions, it depends on where you live. Like some countries definitions aren't like our definitions. And so there's still not a single, you could be declared alive in one country and dead in another. If you had dual citizenship, you'd be both. So, you know, it's complicated. We have uh, the Jackie McMath case where they flew her, she had been declared brain dead and therefore a death certificate was issued and they flew her to New Jersey, the family did, where um, there was a special sort of dispensation for people of a certain religious persuasion so that they could undeclare, they could basically declare her alive. And so, I mean, think about that. We haven't answered it now. We still don't know. We know what live is and we know what dead is, but it's that middle distance is very messy and we're not really sure when you stop being you. And we, we, you'd think, you'd like to think we'd, we'd get that right. So Dr. White, this is an unanswerable mystery. And he felt that the brain was as complicated as outer space and just as undiscovered. And so I, I think partly that was about saving lives, but partly he thought Victor Frankenstein was a hero. You know, this is somebody who didn't read that as a cautionary tale and thought we don't achieve unless we reach. So his scientific side pushed so far that it skirted those edges. You know, and even though he was deeply ethical, he helped the Pope set up the Vatican Council for Bioethics. So clearly he cared about ethics, but some of his research was really, really shoving in, in directions that uh, we might not all agree on. He had no choice in his mind but to push the bounds because he felt there was something there to reach for. Mm-hmm. One thing that comes to mind is that this is very related to recent time or right now where uh, very well-off people would like to replace parts of their bloodstream, parts of their body so as to stay young or youthful or find ways to demethylate, whatever it might be, so that the clock of time is 
removed. So that's a straight linkage to this kind of uh, analysis. It especially is because um, the person who is sort of picked up from Dr. White in modern times is Sergio Canavero, who's a somewhat, um, he's, a, he's a figure of conflict, let's put it that way, but he basically has said as much in a TED talk. He basically got on and said, why not just grow some bodies and you know we'll figure out head transplants and we'll figure out that we haven't figured out how to reattach the spinal cord, but he's like, let's just figure that out. And then you can just have a new body. So there are people easy. talking exactly that way. <laughs> Should be a simple process, just kind of adjust some movements. And... Yeah, but who, you know, who would that be for? I mean, the, one of the questions that White got asked was, okay, he had a patient that was willing to go through with this, a paralyzed patient who was suffering some organ failure, who was willing to be his first uh, test subject for a human head transplant, body transplant, sorry. He calls it a head transplant when it's monkeys. When he moves on to talking about people, he calls it a body transplant because you're here in his mind. So, and monkeys aren't, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so he had some, some yeah, it part, yeah. It, he believed that humans had souls and he did not think that monkeys had souls. And that's his Catholicism and his, his uh, medical training all kind of conflicting and moving together there. But uh, anyway, when he said he wanted to do this, people asked him, they said, well, okay, so, you're gonna take a, a body that is brain dead and you're gonna take that body and give it to someone else. But if that body, if that person that that used to be was a, an organ donor, then that means there's heart, liver, lungs, you know, various other tissues that could be, don kidneys, you know, that could be donated to save people's lives, people who are on lists, waiting lists for organ transplant, but now you're gonna give all five organs to the same person, you know, how do you decide? What, is he worth five people? Like, why is he worth five people? Who makes that determination? So even before we get to rich people buying bodies and sticking their head on it, um, <laughs> which can't happen, it can't happen. I mean, it could, but you wouldn't want it to. Um, you have these other questions, you know, even if you did it the right way and for the right reasons, with so many people waiting around for lungs and hearts and, you know, how do you just go like, sorry, he's getting all of them. I mean, that's a, it's a complicated question. That's true. We're changing up the rules. No, next week, oh, we're going to switch it back up. Well, I needed a lung. That's true. <laughs> it's also like those ethics questions, like, would you derail a train to avoid five mm. people or would you save one person? Like challenges of where, where it, do you It's very much, it's, yeah, it's very much that kind of ethical conundrum. And on the same token, the, the person whose life he was trying to save with a body transplant Craig Vitovitz um, was very vocal about how, you know, the only reason he was looking into it is because the medical community wouldn't give him an organ transplant. He wanted a kidney transplant, but people with paralysis are not considered good candidates. And for him, he felt like that was as though the medical community was saying that disabled lives were worthless. And so he's like, that's ableism. So, I mean, there's, there's, it's difficult to come down on the side on this issue because there are so many ways of looking at it. And I, I think it's complexity you know, you think about it, you're like head transplant, ah, but it, it's actually a deeply complex ethical historical issue that um, takes a lot of thinking through. Mm -hmm. It's another level we haven't had in humanity. And it, it's not, you don't have to question it before because it's not possible. As it becomes more possible, then it's like, oh, which one is the person? Does that person have the same values as original? Whose body is that? Uh, mm -hmm. Can everybody do that? No, just a few. Yeah, mm -hmm. then you start to have to, it's, it's like when you have self-driving cars and then wait a minute, what are we allowed to do? What, should, <laughs> what risks should it take? What should it not? 
before that show. The, the unfortunate thing about science, technology, and medicine is that we usually end up in the cans before we end up in the shoulds. Like we 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 often oh, yeah. get there before we go. We think about the consequences. And uh, one of my favorite theorists is a French theorist named Paul Virilio, and he was a theorist of accidents because that's a thing in France. Um, and he <laughs> said uh, he said basically, if you invent a plane, you've also just invented the plane crash. So any new technology you create comes with its own disaster built right in. And we, you know, often can't even consider, we don't, we don't, we're unable to see the consequences because we haven't seen our first plane crash. So it's, you know, or you vent a train, you invent a train derailment. So it's, it's the same kind of, kind of idea here where um, we, we need to lay down ethics now. No, we cannot at the moment, I can't, you know, no one's going to put a head on another body and that body then be able to walk around controlled by that head. That can't happen yet. Yes, head transplant is possible, but it's almost really just using a body as a as a life support system for a head. And we don't even know how long it would last. The monkeys that he did lived for nine days. Um, so it's hard to say exactly how long this would actually work for. You could in theory keep a head going, but it's not the same thing as just creating, you know, a new body. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be asking those questions. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be considering it because you want the ethics in place before we get to the point that science goes, hey, I got it figured out. <laughs> you know, we, we want to know. And, and how do you answer that question? Where are we in this complex composite of body and brain? I mean, there's, I have neurons in my gut. I have hormones that affect the, my brain and the way, you know, also my experiences, all of these things. Is that are you really just a brain on legs, you know, or, or are you a much more complicated and composite creature um, is a question we, we really, we can't answer yet. That's true. Which parts are the most important? Which parts are the whole, if you took out all the parts, the gut, like the gut connection, the vagus nerve suddenly mm -hmm. affects your mood, but it's way down there, but that's not in your brain. That's yeah. True. It's, right. it's, it's complicated. And then if you think about it too, um, what your body looks like, is really important. I mean, if, if, if the new, if LGBTQ folk have taught us anything, it's that, you know, what you look like on the outside is actually, and how it relates to your identity is important. And, and this is why you end up with things like, you know, d dysphoria and other problems where you look like you're a gender that you don't belong in and you, you feel like a woman, but you look like, a, you know, th this actually causes internal conflict you know, high suicide rates among teenagers who have this problem, like all of that. So to say that somehow you're just a brain and we can stick it on anybody is a bit naive, I think, about how humans actually work, you know. Right. Which is good. Then there's more to us. We're all interconnected versus We're all, just like yeah. a, some little, like an engine of a car. Well, and you know, it's funny because um, where is sentience and when does it start? Carl Zimmer's book, we had him on for Life's Edge at the Peculiar Book Club. And I think you've interviewed him too. Yes. At what point do those Petri dish brains become like sentient? And how much, how sentient? Like, where do you draw these lines? You know, it's, it's so difficult to ask those questions. We, we think we know so much about ourselves, but the humans are still a great mystery. It's true. It's like the amoeba. You see an amoeba going towards food or something over time and it like they'll walk and create maps on their own just from following food like this looks like a genius but it's an amoeba that we would say oh this has no thought involved so that's funny now you mentioned carl zimmer and being on your book club and i wanted to mention the peculiar book club can you tell us about how it started 
what kinds of people uh, who you talk to and why is it called peculiar versus completely normal Um, book club? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm a pretty peculiar individual as it turns out. Uh, Along with peculiar people. All that growing up underground and underground houses and things um, next to cemeteries. So, you know, yes, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little strange myself, but it came from, I love nonfiction. I've got lots of books behind my head here. I love to read nonfiction. I like fiction too, and there are fiction book clubs and you can find them, but where do you find other people who are reading stuff like Mary Roach's Stiff or Carl Zimmer's Life's Edge, Sam Keen, you know, Dueling Neurosurgeons or Ice Pick Surgeon, all of these like really weird, Thomas More's Exploding Teeth, it's all about like, the things people put up their bums are really astonishing uh, in history. Like, you know, hundred years of things up bums. It's fascinating, but you know, weird books about real things in science and medicine. And I said on Twitter one day, why are there, no, why isn't there like an Oprah book club, but like for Morticia Adams, you know, from the Adams family. And everyone said, why don't you make one? And I thought, well, I don't know who would want to come. And then Mary Roach contacted me, <laughs> Lindsay Fitz, like a whole bunch of people were like, we come. And I was like, well, fantastic. So that's how it started. And uh, it, it's it's a webpage to begin with. It's on my web. If you go to my webpage, which is brandyskilache.com backslash peculiar, that's where you'll find all of this year's, um, this season's guests, which goes through December. Then uh, we also have a Facebook group and a YouTube channel. And so the, it's a live stream. So you come on and you actually talk to live people you could ask questions of mary roach or you know lindsey fitzharris or yeah, i'm going to be having frank spotnitz on with me in the future uh, chuck wendig was on um who just did a book of accidents right so we've got these fun people you get to talk to them as the audience and there's prizes there's games there's a quiz there's you know there's oh and there's cocktails i make a book themed cocktail for every single one of these and then you get to, the audience gets to pick the name. And then if you, if your name is chosen, you get sent swag and we've got t-shirts and we literally have t-shirts. So it's a super fun thing that just kind of got out of hand. I've already booked my entire second season, which starts in January and Deborah Blum from Poisoner's Handbook will be on. And we're, we're helping to launch uh, Mary Roach's next book, Fuzz. So it's, it's just this, um, wonderful series of people, Catherine Harkup making the monster. She's the one who did A is for Arsenic, the poisons oh. of Agatha Christie. Uh, so she's did one about the science behind Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So we're going to be doing that as our first show in October. We're going to be doing my book at the second show uh, and also talking about X-Files. So basically, if you're weird, you're family. There's, that's, there's a book actually that came out like a month ago called Weird or recently. I forgot who it was by Weird. But that's a good point. And also, I like that you mentioned, is there a this? You didn't see it. It was in a specific category of uh, nonfiction. I noticed that too. There's a lot of fiction gatherings and book clubs, but there's a shortage of mm-hmm. nonfiction and more specifically nonfiction plus we'll call it uh, anomalies of sorts. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those weird ph- philosophical questions, just like Carl Zimmer's life's edge, you know, where, what's alive? Do we even know what that means? You know, it's just asking these interesting questions to me, I think fascinating questions um, about what is it? Scott Carney is going to be on later with The Wedge and, or no, uh, sorry, The Wedge was the last one. (laughs) He's done so many. So it's, it's really, you know, the books that make you go, I gotta, I gotta go home and think about that for a while. That that's, that's what we wanted. You're promoting critical thinking. Darn it. That's (laughs) the best things in life come from a person 
this natural being and something's not there and then they bring it out there because then it fits you forever it's, mm-hmm. it's not like disconnected ever versus pre- presenting something that is not oneself it will always it has a time frame it has a time yeah, limitation it does. you get tired you'll, you'll just wear out you know doing something that isn't really you you've created your own employment i guess like <laughs> i now i now go to a job darn it why how did i do that so <laughs> It, it is a lot more work than I was expecting because I also do all the I do ads I do promos we do silly videos on TikTok of me like dressed up like Dr. Frankenstein it's it's a whole thing um I get my uh my partner to be props so he's he, he's in and out of the videos too so it has taken on a life of its own but it's so much fun we probably have we have I think 100 uh members on the Facebook but I know we have 400 people on our mailing list so I mean it's a it's a big group of people and you don't even necessarily have to have read the book. It's great if you do, but some people just come to see what the book is about. And then they're like, wow, that's awesome. Oh, and we partner with book clubs, or sorry, book shops, independent bookstores. So you get signed copies of all the books. So if you want to join our book club, you also get a book that's signed by the author from an independent bookstore. So I have to add in, this is very current time because the live stream, people involvement, there, in, in the current time, anything that's not towards this has no chance over time because <laughs> individuals don't want to have like see a person 12 minutes a week and then wonder what they were doing the rest of the week. They want to be connected. They want to be community. They want to be part of that was not there, let's say, 20 years ago. Uh, no, much. it wasn't. And, and community is really so in medical humanities. So I'm this editor of this journal of an academic journal, too. But um it really is about trying to find who hasn't been listened to, who who doesn't have a space, you know, uh, and we're a super inclusive group. And so it was about, I wanted a group that was going to be able to talk to each other, not just to me, not just to the author, but to also themselves. And and we we have that. They go on Facebook and they they chat with each other and they're on Twitter together. And, you know, it's interesting. The reason I've joined so many platforms is I'm not actually like, I've become a sort of social media maven by accident, but it's just, I'm following this, these groups and we're all getting together in these interesting ways. And there's not just one place to, to find us, you know? Um, and you can watch our YouTube channel. Actually, all of the things have been taped that are up there. You can watch them once they're not live for free. Um, and if you want to watch them live, you do have to register, but it's by donation. So it's basically you sort of pay what you want. We hope people will pay a little bit because it helps us break even, but you don't necessarily have to. And so that way it's not prohibitive to anybody either. This is a great, this is all current. I, I know I checked the internet. I'm very with it. This is all very right now. And you're right. That's a very powerful point. Who hasn't been listened to? That's like the starting framework of most efforts that really do well because you have individuals who are like, this doesn't fit me. Oh, wait, that that does look like something I'd want to purchase. I can be part of it. That's John. <laughs> That's Melissa. Hey, it's very nice. Yeah, yeah. it feels good. And I, you know, I, I think I spent enough of my life being a, a bit of a, you know, I was the weird kid and all that. I spent enough of my life feeling out there. I'm a little strange and I'm kind of non-binary gender fluid person. And, and it's just finding out that you don't have to choose a community. You can make one. You know, you don't have, you don't find that you fit in any of those boxes. You don't have to. Uh, and the, the cool thing about us is that we're, we're sort of open to suggestions too. So that means people tell my readers will say, or my audience members will contact me and be like, Hey, this book just launched last year. I'm reading it right now. It's fantastic. Do you think we could get this person on? And so it, they, they matter, like their opinions matter. And I listen to them. And I'm also, um, I'm shockingly easy to get in touch with. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not, 
but um but yeah I'm I'm out there and I'm I do respond to people um and also as an author too and you know like I'm not there aren't levels there's like, it's just like I wonder what that author Brandy is like what are you like well let me tell you so um it, that one-on-one that, that's something that's new too you didn't used to have that but with Twitter especially um and just the people willing to come on Mary Roach being like yeah I want your people to ask me questions I'm astonished by how open and accepting and fun a lot of these authors of peculiar books are <laughs> that makes sense those who were not in the specific concrete set guidelines have more way more opportunity today to reach out beyond those whereas maybe 40 years ago nope sorry like it's you're not cool you don't, yeah. it doesn't blend in that does, i will say this though it is a lot more work um you right. have to want you have to want it i mean i'm i'm an author and you end up doing a lot of your own promotion i mean my book my book was published by simon and schuster i've had reviews in new york times all these places but in the end no one will read it if you don't reach out to them. Um, it's we're just not in the world where you know you don't you don't have that sense of like I will go to Barnes and Noble and I will buy what's on the front table. There is no place we don't even go to physical bookstores half the time. So it, that serendipitous like I will just be I will follow what the publishing industry tells me I should buy. It's not there anymore. Um, that's a lot more work for the author, but I think it's a lot better for the readers. And so since I'm both a reader and an author, I'm, I'm sort of reaping and sowing at the same time. I have to throw back in, you were mentioning weird. I remember when I was in sixth grade, me and my friend Scott, we'd go up to people at school and say, who's more weird? I don't know why we did it, but we would challenge people to say which one of us was more weird, wanting to be the weirder one. So victory was yeah. mine once in a while. I, yeah, I, I, I didn't have to ask. Uh, <laughs> I was that remember right it's like who's she well she's the one who lives in a hole in the ground next to a cemetery and has that pet raccoon so I don't think there was ever going to be a point where anyone was going to go is she the weird one she's the weird one <laughs> they were not asking they just they were not asking no. they put in a thing. <laughs> now one thing I always like to check is what is one message you would want people to take away from hmm. the writing of the book or uh, the experiments and research that was done by the doctor? So I think my most, and I get asked this question a lot, actually. Um, I would say that one of the things that becomes very clear to me in writing all the books that I write is that science is sometimes, it's, it's behind this, um, this door. And we regular people, we struggle to access it because it's difficult to read, it's in academic journals, or it's, it's, the books are very expensive or something like that. But all the same, we as the general public, we, we have a right to know about these things. And we don't really want to abdicate the ethical responsibility to someone else to make decisions about how science should get done. Um, I'm very keen on social justice issues. Obviously, I think that's probably evident. Um, but as a result of that, you know, for me, becoming a public science communicator, someone who writes these kind of books, so that I'm taking that weird stuff that's difficult to read and understand. And I'm turning it into a story that is a page turner that you wanna find out more about and making sure that you understand along the way. That's so that we, we have a responsibility and your opinion matters. You know, you, we have power, we are many. And we as a public, it, we ought to care. Who, who's hurt by this? Who's helped by this? 
is this limiting itself in some way? And so even though the book is fun, you guys, if you read it, it's just, it's crazy fun. It's, it's like a spy novel almost. Um, you know, parts of it take place. I had to go to Moscow to do that research, by the way, and I don't speak Russian, so it was an interesting trip. Uh, it was rushing <laughs> oh, to Russia. I was rushing to Russia. It was fascinating. I loved it there. I stayed at the Metropole. It was beautiful, red on red square. But oh. my point is, we read these books. It is for entertainment, but it's also because, because you matter. Your, your opinion matters. What you have to say matters. Science will get done with or without you but we don't want to abdicate the responsibility for how it gets done. We want to make sure that justice is also, that social justice and that we are all included in, you know, the, the, the way people think about science and how they practice it. Great point. And I also want to add in that you've mentioned the value of story. It shows that story is important. And probably if story was not so relevant, it wouldn't be called that. It would be just like surgery done during the Cold War. <laughs> like, so it doesn't have the same pull factor. Oh, it's funny when I when I uh, when my editor first took it to her higher ups at Simon and Schuster, they said to her, "Oh, we read the proposal, but we don't do we don't do fiction." And she was like, "Yeah, it's it's not fiction, <laughs> but it is written to be that way. I wrote it intentionally so that it would be something anyone could access. You know, my mother can read it, my grandmother can, read, you know, they, they could read it and get it and think it was exciting, and yet still also be really informed. So that was." That was important to me. Plus, also, I just tend to be a bit of a storyteller. It's very valuable. Kobe Bryant talked about that. Almost everybody who we know their name mentions that in some form because it's the most compelling thing ever when there's details in a story versus just if it said cardiothoracic incisions in 1914. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah. seems like an encyclopedia of sorts. This right. <laughs> That's what I have to read. And so, you know, pity me. I'm the one who reads that stuff. And then I translate it into something more interesting for you guys. That is the quote work right there, folks. <laughs> Dr. Brandy Skilache. Yes. I would very like good. to thank you for having been on this episode of the show, sharing information about the story in Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, and also telling us about the Peculiar Book Club. Thank you. It was really great being here. Glad to have you on and we are out. <laughs>